Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am here, Mary Catherine Ham, your host, not with my friend Vic today. I know I'm throwing you a curveball, but it's the best curveball because it's Kristen Soltz Anderson, Republican pollster and just general great person and buddy of mine. She also writes a newsletter called Codebook. Correct, Kristen? Do I get that right? That's right. Which you can subscribe to and you should because you will know all the things you need to know about polling, which we're going to ask her about today. How are you doing, Kristen? I am doing great. I am indoors. I am air conditioned and I am seated in a chair. So those are at the, at the present moment, the most important boxes for me to be checking. Very nice. Kristen is at the moment on the precipice of motherhood. <laughs> it is summer. It's not the greatest season to be very pregnant. But how's prep going? You know, I am at this point so antsy and ready to meet this baby because there's nothing left to do. I'm normally a procrastinator. And so you would think there would be all these things that at the last minute I'd be scrambling to do. But instead, I was just so anxious to get them all done that, like, I've already washed loads of laundry. Like, I've, I've organized everything. It's now it's just this interminable waiting period. So I'm, I'm very ready. (laughs) I am probably more of a procrastinator than you are. And yet the hormones, when I am pregnant, tell me to do things and I do them like folding things and washing things. And, oh yeah. Nesting is wild. I, I, I was very dismissive of a lot of these things that you, you hear about when you are like, when you're, when you're not pregnant, you've never been pregnant where people are like, Oh, mom brain, or you'll get this nesting instinct. And I'm always like, mm, I don't know. Like, is that really a thing? Or is, you know, is mom brain really a thing or is it just internalized misogyny? And now I'm like, no, no, these are all very real things. It's My real house thing. is spotless. And also I've had to return multiple pieces of furniture because I didn't properly measure <laughs> The width of hallways in my house. Like, and that's not a mistake I would have made before. So like, what's going on? I'm very, I'm so excited, but I'm very apprehensive about what's coming, both because of people love to terrify you about the birth process. I, bless Kelly Maher for her Shout Your Normal Childbirth blog post from a few yes. years back, because I could really use some of that right now. I'm, I'm yeah, apprehensive is- and you know, anxious about the way that a Mack truck is about to get driven over my life as I knew it and I'm not going to be able to sleep and all those things. But the thing that I'm the most freaked out about, and it kind of relates to that, like mom brain nesting, all of a sudden your brain behaving in ways that it didn't before, that that to me is the stuff that freaks me out the most. A year ago, there was a I, I did a radio interview with Abigail Tucker, who some of you may know as Ross Douthat's lovely better gotcha. half. She wrote a book called Mom Genes, and it's about the psychology and biology of what happens when you become a mother and the way that your brain gets overwritten. Right. That to me. I mean, some of the things seem like cute and benign, right? That all of a sudden, if you're someone who thinks, I don't understand how you can possibly think babies smell good, you have a baby and suddenly you're like, my baby is the most wonderful smelling thing in the world. Like, that is not a thought my brain knows how to comprehend right now. But 
it doesn't freak me out that that's like a thing that might happen. But there's there's like a quote in her book where she talks about having been someone who like met her husband on the debate team and thinks of herself as, you know, I'm someone who's an intellectual who does a lot of writing. And then she's like, I had a baby and my brain was different. And some of the things I was good at, I was less good at. Like they had to make space for Peppa Pig. Yes. And that freaks me out a little, a lot. Not it just is, a little, a lot. There, yes, there are changes. I would say one while I was nesting with this, with uh, my latest baby, the older two girls benefited because every single receptacle in their room is now labeled. Like, hey, every, we have we have many different toy boxes that are like, this is where the LOL dolls go, because something in me was like. The LOL dolls have to be with the other LOL dolls and the Hatchimals need to be with the other Hatchimals. <laughs> and have they ever been together again since the day that I put the labels on things? No, but for some reason I needed to do that. And as far as my brain goes, I do think post kids, I am, <laughs> it made my brain more sort of prone to performance slash urgency. Like, like things that were, I was never great at things that took a lot of planning and were methodical, but I was like, I was better at them. Now it's like being on stage, doing the TV thing, doing a speech, doing a podcast. Those are the moments where my brain goes, oh, you have no choice but to focus on this thing. And then suddenly it does the thing it's supposed to do. (laughs) Other than that, I have trouble making it do that because it's doing a thousand other things. So there are changes. There are some of the changes that they describe in the book sound like cool superpowers, right? That one of them is that biologically you supposedly become more alert to threats, that you are more able to perceive in the face of a stranger coming down the street, do they actually perceive a threat to me or not? And at the same time, the other superpower you get is the ability to be like super calm under pressure. Like the book has all of these stories of moms who, you know, in the middle of an earthquake in California, like everybody else in the hospital rates it as this like enormously stressful thing. And all of the new moms are like, did we even have an earthquake? I I guess we had an earthquake. Sure. I, it was fine. So there are some of these changes that I'm, I think might be kind of interesting. And I also, I, I, I have so many friends of mine like you who have had kids and you you did not your brains did not turn to mush like for some reason reading this mom jeans book just like freaked me out so much <laughs> when I'm like I have lots of friends that have kids who are incredibly bright accomplished women and none of that changed after they had kids so why am I freaked out about right. this but it is the idea of like I'm gonna get a firmware update to yes. my brain in the next couple of days or weeks and I can't do anything about it. And and like I all don't know updates, who I'm going to be on the other side. Like all other updates. I hope she's things, cool. <laughs> some things will work better and some things will not work as well. That's yep. That's, that's how it goes. Well, I'm very excited for you. And I should mention, you mentioned Kelly's a Substack is realbestlife.substack.com. And she wrote about shout your normal birth story because there is this seeming competition to sort of out traumatize everyone with your, with the things that happened during your harrowing birth and birth is like a very serious thing and can be indeed harrowing, but there's also miracles and wonderful things that happen. And it can also just be also, it's just a thing that happens every day and that people do 
all the time. And, and to just get comfortable with telling the story of like, yeah, everything worked out fine. I did the thing. I went to the hospital and then the baby was here. And it was like, you know, you don't, I don't have to impress everybody with the, the horror show, not to, not to denigrate anyone's story, but I do think those stories are important, particularly for people who are going into a new experience. (laughs) Well, I, I find a lot of the discourse around birth stories and how they are conveyed to people like me who like the only way out is through this is happening. So, okay. Uh, is it's a, it's a weird combination of both like extreme like drama and total nonchalance. Yes. So it'll be like, Oh yeah, I, I had to go to the hospital and you know, there was a lot of hemorrhaging. I needed a blood transfusion. When the baby came out, baby was blue because cord was wrapped around, around his neck. But you know, I, I almost died, but it was fine. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay, so simultaneously, that sounds terrifying and not right. fine. But also, like, was it really that bad? Like, it, everybody seems fine. I feel like that doesn't sound like a situation where everybody would have been fine. So I, I confess that, like, Reddit is a place where I get way too much information about all sorts of things. And it's funny. You can search for, you know, birth stories. And you can use the word positive. And, like, people have flagged, ah. like, my birth story is a positive birth story. Right. But even that, I'm reading a lot of these and I'm like, this is the positive birth story? Yeah. What gets you counted as a negative birth story? (laughs) I I feel very lucky to have had three pretty to very positive birth experiences. And I want that for other people. And I want to encourage people in that direction. However, they were still tough. I mean, it's like, because I have uh, smooth births, occasionally somebody will, and or quick, because this last one was fairly quick, someone will say, oh, your labors are easy. And I'm like, no, 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 easy is not the word. (laughs) But smooth (laughs) is and rewarding. But there is a weird thing where you're like, as soon as you're very close to done, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst. What what craziness am I doing right now? And then it's over and 10 minutes later, you're fine. It's crazy. So that that is the other like... That part uh, is if, where the, the dichotomy exists. If if the, the chemicals are going to start rewriting my brain, I'm okay with them rewriting to erase things that I will not have wanted to remember. That's well, fine. That sounds like an appropriate use of my brain's neurochemicals or whatever. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Kristen, because I couldn't have had this conversation with Vic. Would love, love <laughs> to have this conversation with Vic, honestly. Let me love ask it. you a little bit about a news event from the past week that I know is one of your secret passions and specialties, <laughs> although you do not get to talk about it on TV very often. The Jubilee, the Queen's, Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Can you give me a couple takeaways from this celebration of her 70th year reigning? If there was ever any doubt that there is enormous affection for the Queen, and if there was ever any belief that the United Kingdom is on the verge of throwing the monarchy overboard, I think a lot of that was was addressed by the enormous crowds and outpouring of support, if not for, quote unquote, the monarchy, at least for the Queen herself. It is so heartbreaking to see that, you know, you know, she's she lost uh, her husband, Prince Philip, within the last year and, you know, was unable to attend all of the events because she's she is older and, and, you know, is experiencing health challenges. But it was very interesting to see just how much effort the palace had put into making sure that Charles and Camilla 
and Will and Kate and their children were like front and center because even though this was all about the queen, it was also about continuity. And please, please, even after she's gone, let's keep let's keep this thing going. You know that I believe that Kate can essentially do no wrong. Right. That continued over the course of this weekend. <laughs> Always dressed impeccably. I could watch her manage Prince Louis, the youngest, who oh just made a variety of amazing faces all week. Watching them was a total delight. I thought that they were great. And I also thought that the event showcased how even a lot of members of that family who are not working royals, but are nevertheless, you know, small F family members, right. were able to be included and highlighted if they wanted to be and right. weren't. So I, I just thought the contrast was super interesting. It was. I, I felt for Kate while she was dealing with the youngest prince and also just enjoy that she seems to enjoy her kids. That even obviously that part is the part where you're like sweating in public and thinking, oh my gosh, what is he going to do next? However, her sort of working through that, the only way out is through <laughs> this child's tantrum, working through that in public. I, I can't imagine having to do it on that stage and she pulls it off nicely. And also I feel like there's a, sort of a modern, more acceptance of this than if it had been, for instance, Diana with Harry and William enduring the same thing uh, there's a little bit of like kids are going to be kids that perhaps even for royals exists now uh that didn't in the past and i kind of enjoyed that very much so and it's also i can't imagine having the task of raising your children in that kind of a spotlight to both be able to navigate hey you're gonna have to wave to a bunch of crowds of strangers who you don't know and just deal with it but also don't grow up to be an entitled weirdo I know. <laughs> that cannot be an easy line to walk well and, and he's, he's what three and a half four something like that mm -hmm. and he's up past his bedtime at a nighttime event for many hours Ooh, man that's a i would just be sweating right through that dress of course kate does not but <laughs> she's not like <laughs> us mere mortals but woo, the pressure but they they pulled it off. I, th I thought it was it was nice to see all of it. And I also just a shout out to the queen for the bright, amazing colors she wears. That's I an just, intentional choice. I I, so I so highly much. recommend anyone who's real interested in this. It's a book by a woman named Angela Kelly. She is has been the queen's dresser for decades now. She is the one who polices, who gets to use what tiaras for what weddings. So in case you've ever heard any stories of controversy around that, Angela is the one defending who gets to use what crown wear. But she, as someone who makes all of the queen's clothes or a lot of the queen's clothes, they intentionally put the queen in like lime green and stuff yeah. because they know if you go and you are standing outside the balcony to Buckingham Palace, you want to see the queen and you don't right. want to be squinting to be like, which little blob on the balcony is the queen so it's very intentional as is kind of everything around that institution theoretically but i'm i'm with you i she always she always looks great and i i love that choice yeah she's not in beige my, my girl is never in beige okay let me let me move to the news real quick we're gonna do we're gonna do some news and then a little bit on your your newsletter from from some of the polling you've been looking at 
Oh, wait, the first news that people need to hear is a quick update on my kids at camp. If you have Ooh. not heard this story, Kristen. What's the children, update? I sent my children to a camp in North Carolina that sprung on me that they would be indoor masking two days before the camp began. And I took issue with this. I imagine you did. And so I had a discussion with the camp director during which he offered me a refund many times because I think he desperately wanted to get off the phone with me. And he wouldn't, but he wouldn't budge on the rule. So my husband, in his annoying wisdom, was like, well, let's find out how much they're inside and give them the choice. See what they want to do. And I was like, ugh, autonomy for the children. And I'm not going to make them foot soldiers in my ideological battle about against this silliness. So we talked to them. They're outside most of the day. They're not masking a ton. And I said, what do you want to do? And even enticed them with some other cool things. And they were like, go to camp and i was like fine fine so they are enjoying themselves with the minimal masking and i will take my complaint up the up the ranks nonetheless but that's where we are that was my 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 big news with the camp this week what are the what are the main activities that they will be engaged in at this camp like to when i imagine kids camp i think of like salute your shorts Camp on Awana. This is just a day camp, but it is at this wonderful science museum in my hometown, uh, Children's Science Museum. So they have like 28 acres of facilities with like a train and a dinosaur trail and a butterfly house and all the things. So they go. I feel like there's a chance my friend Nicole has rented this. This is in Raleigh, like Raleigh. It's in Durham. Mm -hmm. I am pretty sure my friend Nicole has rented this out for her 40th birthday which is going to be a year and a half from now like she's already decided wow. that when she turns 40 she wants to bring all of her friends together and drink heavily in this children's museum it's at a great night. place it's actually legit i have to check with her to see if this is the same place <laughs> this is where your it children might be. are going to camp right now <laughs> it might be they do events so it, it probably is uh and that sounds fun so they will be you know traversing all of these grounds the silly thing about this and Apologies for our listeners for whom I'm repeating this, but the the true insanity is that the the policy for going to the museum with my children is masks optional. However, if I pay extra money and put them in camp, they're masked indoors. And I was like, sir, this does not make sense to me. So can you tell him that Eric Adams <sighs> has walked away from the indoor masks on kids thing as of... I mean, like five minutes ago, I I pointed to several David Lee Unhart columns and I was unpersuasive in this argument, (laughs) but you got to make some noise. As I was saying, I I am endeavoring to be a slightly more annoying person on these things because that's who gets action. Like you can't, you can't actually change the situation unless you get a little bit Karen-y. And so I did the thing and I got a little Karen-y. That's what I did. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. Now to the actual news. Which is a bit of a bummer. La- yesterday, or this week, I should say, because this comes out tomorrow, an armed man was found outside or near Justice Kavanaugh's house. He traveled from California. Nicholas John Rusk, 26, said he was upset about the shooting in Uvalde and possible gun control rulings. He was armed with a pistol, a knife, and other weapons. Arrested near the home of Brett Kavanaugh early Wednesday and wanted to take him out. Inside his suitcase and backpack, authorities later discovered a black tactical chest rig and a tactical knife. He had zip ties, pepper spray, a hammer, screwdriver, nail punch, crowbar. Anyway, scary things. A list of scary things, Kristen. 
Um, not in a great place. I have to say, I know we play the game of like, if this were a conservative at a liberal justice's house, what would it look like in the media? And sometimes that game gets a little tiresome, but let me just say that this story ended up on page 820 of the New York Times today. I, I, when I saw Guy Benson post, this is what the front page of the paper looks like. And it was a teeny tiny little, it was like person arrested outside justice's house. It's like, there's, there's for what, Mm -hmm. what were they arrested for? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that. It's just wild to me. And look, I'm I, I I'm with you. Like I don't think there's a ton of I'm not interested in going down the like well, progressive rhetoric is driving people to violence right. more than concern. You know, like but I just think that there is a belief that you can say whatever you want and you can turn up the temperature as much as you want. And because the other side is really bad, it's all justified, right? Like, it's okay that I'm engaged in talking about my political opponents in ways I wouldn't have before because the situation is so dire and so grave that it justifies the kinds of, of language I'm using and, and the kind of rhetoric I'm using. And I'm just... Yeah. I, uh, we're in, I, I'm, I'm real nervous about the moment that we're in right now. Yes. It's not, it's not great. And I, I, I am both a free, free speech enthusiast and also somebody who tries to be very responsible in public. So I, I love both things. So I want to be careful always about saying, for instance, the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter leaders is incendiary and might lead to such and such and like correlating those two too much because one is speech you are not a speech is violence right and one is speech and one is violence right and so i don't want to be like making that causation uh link too easily because i think that endangers speech however like the people who complain about eliminationist rhetoric should be wary of using it (laughs) in public and be responsible actors and it does seem that it is the eliminationist rhetoric and the incendiary stuff is only an issue when it comes from one side versus the other. And I think that that's a, it's not a responsible way to cover news. It's not a responsible way for leaders to speak in public. And you end up with this situation where everybody, unfortunately on the right, people go, well, screw it. Like we should be able to do whatever we want to do because they don't actually care about this at all. And I understand that feel. I understand that feel and I don't like where it leads. There is a lot of evidence that the reason why we have had this like degradation of norms as of late is my, my, the way I describe it is the thermostat is broken in our politics that it used to be the case that if America was like trending one way, people would go, Oh no, 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 no. I didn't actually want that. And and things would kind of trend back the other way. And you would naturally sort of wind up in an equilibrium ideologically and, and, you know, size of government wise, like a whole host of things. And that what's broken now is that we're in this like doom spiral where folks on the right feel like the left has enormous amounts of power and a willingness to use it in new and dangerous ways. So they say, people on the left, it's not just that you control the White House and Congress, but you control big tech, big media, you know, corporate America, you know, that that we as conservatives have run out of arenas where we have power. And therefore, we are justified in doing more and more extreme things to hang on to the power we have left. And the problem is the left says the same thing. They say, 
you guys have Mitch McConnell. You have enormous amounts of power and you know how to use it. And we're a bunch of weaklings and you control dark money and you control, you have the gerrymandering and you have the filibuster. And so, and you have the Supreme Court and therefore we are justified in right. doing things that are extreme because we on the left do not have power. The only way we can fight back is by being extreme. And so when both sides view the other side as increasingly powerful, their own side is increasingly weak. Like you start to justify justifies a lot of things, crazier and crazier things. Yeah. Speaking of justifying crazy things, the uh, January 6th commission will be doing primetime hearings this week. And I just, I just sort of briefly, this, this sort of falls into the storyline about maybe the people who are really upset about this, not taking it so seriously. This is the, the headline slash tweet that I read from Axios this week when I was sort of like reading up on the January 6th stuff, getting ready for this because our, our media attention span for the January 6th stuff, which is very serious. And I understand why they're paying attention to it is very long. Whereas the, the Kavanaugh story will be like less than 18 hours long. So here we are, they're having the, the hearings. And this is the lead. The House's January 6th committee has split behind the scenes over what actions to take after the public hearings. Some members want big changes on voting rights and even to abolish the Electoral College, while others are resisting proposals to overhaul the U.S. election system, Axios has learned. When I read this, I was the Nathan Fillion gif. Like, what, what, what are we, what are we doing here? What was the plan? Because I had not gotten the memo that electoral college abolishing was part of January 6th committee plan here. What is happening? <laughs> One of the things that's a real shame is there are valuable measures that get broad bipartisan support, things that, for instance, make it harder for a state to play funny games and send a second slate of electors because right. they have a sad about who won. Like, Which is you, a real you, thing that people want to do. That's a real thing that people want to do. It's very bad. And passing a reform that makes it harder for that kind of shenanigan to go down seems sensible to me. But that's the sort of thing that you can't get done when this the stakes for here's what my electoral reform bill will include is, you know, what was what came forward, I think, H.R. 1, where it was it was things like. We're going to have federal matching contributions for small dollar donations up to 20 some dollars, and it'll be six times federal match. And then we're going to have these rules about how states are or are not allowed to draw their lines. And it was like this whole grab bag of things that were a mix of like some good, some bad, some horrific ideas about how to change our election system. Right. And if you insist on all of those things, then and then you get none of them. That's it's just I understand why people get upset about incrementalism sometimes. But like, really, if if you are concerned that someone's going to break into your house and you know that the front door lock is broken, like you shouldn't say, well, let's not get anything fixed until we can get someone to come out and like install the whole security system right. and like lock down all the windows like you need to just fix the front door. And that to me seems like the obvious sort of thing that could be done, but that winds up, no one actually seems interested in doing those things because everybody just wants to score points. Right. I'm keeping you longer than I meant to because you're always so interesting, but I do want to talk about your newsletter, codebook.bulletin.com, about the art of making friends these days. 
And you've been doing these awesome focus groups for the New York Times, which I'm sure has been eye-opening both in working for the New York Times and the New York Times readers' response uh, to your focus groups and the focus groups themselves. But you wrote this week about people making friends, Americans making friends, sort of whether they feel connected to society and whether, whether those friends ever are across the aisle. Tell me a little bit about what you found. So what we found was that people these days, one, have fewer close friends than they used to just in general. You know, compared to, to 1990, people nowadays are much less likely to report having very many people they consider close friends. And while for older Americans, they are more likely to say, look, I've got a couple of friends who have been around for a very long time. And what we heard in those focus groups was, you know, a lot of these conservative men some of them said, like, making new friends these days just seems like a waste of time and effort because the likelihood that I'm going to offend someone is reasonably high. So right. I just rely on the friends I've already got. But for those friends, you know, we've been through enough that even though I voted for Trump and they voted for whoever, you know, we we can weather it because we've got those years of friendship and they, they know that I'm not a bad person, even though I, I disagree with them. But for younger Americans, that's not really the case. That like for them, when they are making the decision of who am I going to be friends with, especially for young progressives, do you share my political views is like a part of that initial friendship mix. And I, I acknowledged in the piece that there are valid reasons why you might not want to be close friends with someone with whom you vehemently disagree on certain issues, that our politics are a reflection of our values, and there just may be values you have that are not the sort of thing I'm looking for in a friend, and that's that's fine. But it, what was so fascinating to me was it was clear that at some point the link to this piece, I, I could never trace, like, who is patient zero, but it wound right. up, like, in, like, dirtbag left podcast <laughs> like, I, I don't know, world. And all of the responses were from people who were like, well, of course, sorry for not wanting to be friends with people who think that trans people should die. And I'm like, yeah. what? that I I'm pretty sure that I'm wasn't in there. Pretty sure that's not what my piece was about. Not really sure anybody clicked on it. I, I feel like this was probably just like discussed on some podcast somewhere. But it was very much an exercise in like a lot of people on the internet not only didn't get the point, but were like actually making the point I was making in the piece through their reaction to it of like, these people clearly have never had a conversation with someone who is Republican or conservative that was not like a politically hostile disaster. And I think part of that is probably because they're not in spaces where they are encountering people in a non-political format at all. Like that's my big prescription is we've got to have arenas of American life right. where we are coming together because we are talking about the bachelorette or we are coming together because we share faith and we're in church or we're coming together because we work in a workplace and we share a skill set. And like politics is, you know, third or fourth order in in those relationships. And I, I just worry that like places in American life that facilitate that are atrophying, which means all that's left is 
oh, well, we talk about politics. And so, of course, I wouldn't want to be friends. Right. With somebody exactly. If you're going to acknowledge my humanity or whatever that looks like. Right. And I think that's a symptom of the thermostat being broken is that is that thing where this plays such a huge role in who you will break bread with that you don't get to the other interests. And I actually, both of you, both of us have have been fellows at Georgetown for for the Institute of Politics. And obviously this is a generation of students far younger than I am. I mean, not that much younger, but they, they do have a very different experience. Now I'm a weirdo. I grew up in an all liberal town. And so most of my friends, my entire life don't agree with me. And that's part of what made me who I am. Like I've, I've spent an entire life explicating my views since I was about seven years old. And that's what I'm comfortable doing. But I feel like with young people in these settings, I tend to end up, I start out teaching a a course or a seminar about free speech, but it ends up being a seminar essentially about how would one speak to other humans? <laughs> because because when when they're confronted with the idea that there are humans they could speak to that have a different point of view, the reaction is very hostile, that that this is either harmful to them or or is a situation in which they need to convert the other person, to which I say, like, don't be the street preacher of politics. Like, that's not... <laughs> You're not winning souls this way. Just have a conversation in which maybe at the end of it, both of you go, I never thought about it that way before. That's it. That's all we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And that will get you much further down the path of humanity than the thing that you're imagining in your head. But I have been surprised at how much of those conversations end up being conversation 101. Yeah. Well, I think part of the the backlash to the piece was that people read the headline, you know, younger Americans less likely to make friends across the aisle, and they get defensive about it because they know that at a certain level, that's not good. And then they're feeling attacked for not having made friends across the aisle. And that's why they're like, well, I I don't have to defend myself for saying I don't, I don't want friends who are, you know, racists or whatever. I'm not saying you need to go get friends who are racist. Yes. That's not the point of my piece. The point of my piece is that perhaps someone who is not a Democrat might also not be a racist. And you might not know that if table stakes for being in your universe are progressive politics. So just consider that possibility is all I'm asking. Yes. And my my pitch is always like, you'll be surprised how much more rich and fun it might make your life to have people who disagree with you around you. It's it's a real thing. I know I'm the weirdo who likes to disagree with people, but it can be, it can be nice. Yeah, be nice. Thank you so much for being with us, Kristen Soltis Anderson. You can find her on Twitter at K Soltis Anderson. What else do you want to pitch, Kristen? Yes, uh, come subscribe to my newsletter at Codebook. It's codebook.bulletin.com. And then listen to I have a radio show on Sirius XM. It's the POTUS nonpartisan politics channel, and it is on the weekends, like Saturdays, 10 a.m. So when you're getting up to go run your errands on Saturday morning, you can listen in. This week, I'm going to have uh, Jamie Kerchick on to talk about his book about the secret history of gay Washington. Nice. Talk about some polls on trust in government. It's going to be it's going to be good. Uh, Vic, of course, by the way, I should mention is is with his family. They are observing and, and celebrating the life of his Aunt Dolly, who passed away, who we heard about this week. So we're glad for him that he gets to be with them and our prayers are, are with all of them. Thank you for being with me today, Kristen. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been a Nebulous Media Podcast. Okay.